Welcome back to season 10 of the Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast based out of the University of Virginia. And each week, we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives and international politics. We are sponsored by the UVA International Relations Organization. I'm your host, AJ Lorienti. Today, we'll be discussing the implications of global Chinese infrastructure projects. To learn more about this topic, I'm sitting down with first year intended public policy major, Andrew Chand, and third year foreign affairs and history major, Reese Kaplan. How are you all doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking, how are you? Good, good. Um, Let's get started with the questions. Um, The first one that I have for you both is just to really outline the topic. So what is the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative and why is it important? Okay, so the Belt and Road Initiative, and we in our research will refer to it as the BRI just for short, is this Chinese infrastructure project. It's very much a grand strategy, um, which is typical of like, the old Soviet Union or uh, communist China, that type of thing. It's a very idealistic grand strategy. Um, It was presented in 2013 by China's president slash strongman uh, Xi Jinping, and he drew inspiration from this concept of the Silk Road that was established during the Han Dynasty and really connected China to the rest of the world um, through trade. So he's basically trying to do that again. And it's basically a very broad infrastructure project um, in many countries. And the five points that the Chinese government says they're trying to accomplish with this BRI is that they want policy coordination, infrastructure connectivity, unimpeded trade, financial integration, and also to connect people. And they were going to do this all by large investments by China through both the Chinese government and also some Chinese private companies. Thank you, Andrew, for giving a really um, concise but really informative overview of this sort of grand strategy of the Chinese Belt and Road. Um, Very much related to this, what factors do you think have caused China to pursue a global strategy in the form of this Belt and Road Initiative? And perhaps what are China's underlying ambitions in pursuing the BRI? Well, a lot of this question depends on who you ask. Everybody, or at least most people know that China has grown economically since the 1990s at an unimaginable rate. Economists are often just in disbelief at how fast it's grown. And now that it has this industrial capacity, it's kind of searching for new markets in a way that it's familiar with in its history where European countries showed up in the 19th century and so began its century of humiliation. And I don't want to say they're trying to humiliate people because that's really not what they're trying to do, but they're also, they're trying to search for new markets and they're trying to expand their economic capacity outside of just being this place where everything's made. They want to trade with people. And part of that is developing countries in the global South, such as in South Asia and Africa, But what their ultimate goals are is a point of contention. If you listen to Professor Warburg, who we talked to, he's a bit more skeptical of the positive ambitions, where if you talk to someone such as Professor Safdar, he is much more lenient to the Chinese and sees it much more as a positive sum game. Hello, Professor Warburg. Thank you for sitting down with the Global Inquirer today. Um, could you give a brief introduction of yourself, what you're doing here at EVA, your position, and just a background on you? Wonderful. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Uh, I am a professor of practice of public policy and formerly the assistant dean at the Batten School. Uh, I was brought down here originally when the Batten School was brand new to help put together uh, the curriculum for the MPP students. And I am a recovering politician. Uh, someone who worked for many years uh, inside the United States Senate and the United States House of Representatives with leadership. Uh, Then I was leading a lobbying firm. um, And for the last uh, 15, 20 years, I've been teaching uh, originally at Georgetown University, but also Stanford, uh, Penn, and my funky undergraduate college of Hampshire College, where I attended in Amherst, Massachusetts. 
if anything is going to make this community, Hampshire College, different from or better than any other college, it will be the willingness of the students to get involved. We want students who want to make their education more than they want to just take it. What do you think China's underlying ambitions are in pursuing this global economic strategy that they've called the Belt and Road, or One Belt, One Road in China? I think there are two fundamental objectives which I think are quite apparent uh, even to the layperson looking at it. Uh, number one is the hunt for influence. Uh, China is a great country with a long history and very substantial resources. Uh, they will soon be, if they're not already this year, the world's largest economy. Um, but number two uh, is resource capture. Um, I believe the debt trap diplomacy, and we'll be talking about this over the course of the hour, the debt trap diplomacy uh, gives China uh, great access uh, to raw materials, particularly in the continent of Africa, to ports in Europe and to transportation hubs in South Asia. So a hunt for influence and resource capture. The Chinese have a way of leading with the, uh, uh, these infrastructure projects and then having an outsized influence uh, on uh, the politics in the country. Uh, and if you want an example of that, just look at how China has country by country by country basically bought um, derecognition of Taiwan and re-recognition of the PRC as a government. Uh, China has, has, has purchased those reversals in country after country after country. We could go through a list of countries where additional aid has been forthcoming immediately after they withdrew their recognition from the Republic of China and Taiwan um, and exclusively recognized Beijing as the sole government of the people in China and on Taiwan. What do you think China's underlying ambitions are in pursuing a global economic strategy such as the Belt and Road Initiative? Uh, so this, I think, is a is a loaded sort of a question. I think uh, there is a lot of literature that sort of questions this whole narrative of uh, China, you know, sort of doing it as part of a grand plan or something of that sort. Um, there are a number of different reasons due to which, you know, uh, different actors within China, and I think that's important to, you know, sort of remember that there are diverse interests within China as well, uh, whose interests might not always, you know, sort of gel well with each other uh, as well. Um, so I think the BRI and the launching the BRI uh, is sort of a coalescing of a number of different incentives within China coming together. Uh, and sort of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, at, it, it came at an opportune time for a number of different uh, actors involved. That's that's one point. I think that's to, to start off straight off the bat, we need to, you know, sort of remember that there's a diversity of actors within China as well, with their own diverse incentives, etc., and their own reasons for supporting initiatives like the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, as far as, you know, if we were to, you know, sort of, take that point that, you know, there is some sort of an overarching uh, China incorporated that's sort of driving the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, again, we need to understand that there are diversity of reasons or there are a number of multiple reasons due to which uh, different Chinese actors would want this sort of a, uh, an initiative to, you know, sort of take place or be launched from the Chinese state's perspectives. Uh, of course, China wants to, you know, sort of showcase itself as a rising power within the global south with, uh, uh, you know, lots, lot more resources than they had at their disposal perhaps uh, a decade ago. Uh, perhaps 2008 can be seen as a, you know, sort of a pivotal period in, in this regard. Um, and they wanted to, you know, sort of showcase their development prowess uh, as well. As far as Chinese state-owned enterprises are concerned, um, you know, lower returns within the domestic market, high levels of investment within, uh, you know, uh, within infrastructure, within the domestic market, uh, lends itself to an expansion and part of the, as part of the going out policy, they would want to, you know, sort of explore markets out there as well. So from their perspective, launching an initiative or launching a, a, a sort of gigantic infrastructure-driven uh, you know, sort of a project like the Belt and Road Initiative means that there's more money uh, out there to, uh, you know, sort of uh, invest in infrastructure projects and sort of use the capacity that they've built over years and to use it in places where that generates some sort of a profit for them as well.
Thank you, Reese. And you already touched on this in your response, but why is China specifically focused on regions like South Asia and Africa? Well, this is another point of contention as I feel is becoming a theme, but largely because they're the areas that need a lot of major infrastructure development, roads, bridges, you name it. Um, and so specifically in Pakistan, they've essentially built the port of Gwadar on the Arabian Sea connected to the Indian Ocean. That's seen as sort of a linchpin of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but they're also involved in Africa and building infrastructure there, such as in Kenya, I believe Andrew has some stuff to touch on there. Um, but in terms of what their ultimate goals are, again, someone as such as Professor Warburg may say they're doing it because they think that countries will default on their loans and then they'll get to own tons of resources across the globe, which is debt trap diplomacy. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that more later. But someone more lenient, such as Professor Womack or Professor Sopdar, um, will say that really they don't want these countries to default on their loans. They want everything to go smoothly. And they're loaning to these countries because they're the countries that need loans and the countries that are willing to accept loans from a country that maybe doesn't have the best human rights record. Thanks again, Reese, especially for outlining uh, such a contentious debate that we'll definitely get back to later in this episode. Um, you also mentioned that Pakistan was a specific focus of China and its BRI program. Why is Pakistan such a good nation to talk about when it comes to this infrastructure project? Yeah, so aside from just the geographical uh, proximity, they're very close to each other. Pakistan is really interesting to look at for a few reasons. Um, according to a lot of the sources that we read and looked at throughout our research, it's the most ambitious single project, specifically the Port of Gwadar, in all of these Belt and Road Initiative projects. It's also an example of mixed results. Um, there has been some success, but also a lot of failure working in Pakistan and between this relationship. So when we talk about these worries of, oh, is China really going to be able to successfully, either with soft diplomacy or hard diplomacy, conquer, so to speak, these countries that they're loaning to? Well, some of these results in Pakistan would suggest, no, they won't be able to. And also there is a very interesting ideological contention between Beijing and Islamabad in Pakistan. When we talk about giving the countries loans, that usually means you accept some bit of Chinese ideology. Well, Pakistan is a majority Muslim country. And as a lot of us probably know, um, China is currently persecuting the Uyghur population, the Muslims in China. So how Pakistan wants to reconcile receiving money from China while also trying, or maybe not trying, to support Muslims throughout the globe is very interesting. These moral contentions between Islamabad and Beijing are something that might seem pretty jarring to others. However, we talked to Professor Safdar about his opinions on Pakistan as a part of the BRI, and he had an important point to make about how Pakistan really did need these loans. My question that I've written down is, why is China so heavily focused on Pakistan as an involved part of its international ambitions and particularly the Belt and Road Initiative? That's a great question. Um, so, and again, we can we can sort of uh, there are uh, as with the with the wider sort of a thing. Uh, it's important to you know sort of look at the various sort of signals uh, and and evidence coming across uh, and to sort of problematize it further uh, rather than you know sort of looking for uh, simplistic answers. Uh, so when the BRI was launched in two thousand thirteen. Uh, it was very amorphous in the way that it was formed, and it's it still is. That's that's part of the uh, strength as far as the the BRI is concerned. Uh, but Pakistan was one of those few countries where that was in chronic need of a large number of investments that were a part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Right. So once again, think about investment in infrastructure such as transport, building roads, building motorways building railway infrastructure. But more uh, importantly, Pakistan was also uh, very deeply affected by rolling power cuts. Uh, 
that were politically very damaging for uh, political actors within uh, within Pakistan. So, and no one was willing to give money to them, right? So the World Bank wasn't willing to give money at that point in time. Uh, the IMF wasn't willing to, I mean, Pakistan was already in an IMF program, but the World Bank and other foreign investors didn't really want to put in uh, a lot of money as far as Pakistan was, con was concerned because of other structural reasons, which we can discuss if you want to. Uh, but the Chinese, was, so the Chinese were basically the only ones who uh, wanted to invest. Yes, that's certainly an in uh, interesting tension there with China and the Uyghurs, um, with Pakistan being another um, Muslim nation. So thank you for, for that insight. Back to the other area of focus that uh, recent Andrew mentioned earlier, what is in it for China and Africa? And why has it increasingly looked like a battleground in recent years. Right. So talking about Pakistan, like going back there, there's it's a very interesting sort of small example, Pakistan in particular and their relationship with India and how India relates to the United States. It's a very like unique issue there. And obviously all the countries in Africa are unique, but they are kind of in a similar post-colonial situation trying to figure out how they can enter the developing world. And so they're sort of like an easy like group of countries for China to target. When we talk about the international diplomacy um, possible side effects of the Belt and Road Initiative, the 54 countries of Africa make up the largest voting bloc in the United Nations. So when China wants to talk about their other foreign policy issues, if we want to play a game of prediction with what would happen if China invaded Taiwan, if China could get all 54 countries of Africa to impede UN proceedings, that could be very helpful to, for them. So that's one reason why it's really important for China to be in Africa if we want to talk about grand strategies. If we don't want to talk about like a very militaristic and more negative view of the Belt and Road, it's still important for China to be in Africa because like Greece mentioned, those countries can really use a lot of infrastructure. And as we've seen, they are really accepting a lot of infrastructure. And it's just a good place for China to make economic activity. Um, Kenya has about one third of their projects right now are being built by China. And I mean, that, that's a pretty staggering statistic to show you the level of involvement that's there for China. Um, two of these most major projects, um, when we talk about the one third of the projects being built by China and Kenya, are the Standard Gauge Railway and also the Nairobi Freeway. And those are really two projects that we center our research around a lot when it came to Kenya as a country, and from which we were able to draw a lot of these general conclusions. Uh, thank you, Andrew, especially for touching on, you know, the debate over the implications of this grand strategy. In light of that, and we have mentioned this multiple times previously, in all of these projects, how worried should the international community be about this debt trap diplomacy, if one could call it that? Um, regarding the Belt and Road Initiative? So for that question, I think it's definitely important to draw on the experts that we interviewed, the professors, because this is a very difficult issue. And we can talk about the facts and different projects all day. But when it comes to the future intentions, which seem to be really important, we're not exactly sure yet. Um, Professor Warmack, Professor Softart both talked a little more leniently about the debt trap and how it might not even be a thing or how there are other goals that aren't necessarily so malicious on China's part. And they said things like this. There haven't been a lot of instances where the Chinese have openly used coercive power to take over these assets that might have strategic value. Part of the reason is perhaps uh, the strong backlash that, that came out of the Hambantota deal. Uh, but we haven't really seen that sort of coercive, um, you know, sort of power being deployed by the Chinese state on, uh, on the, uh, you know, sort of uh, to support their uh, state-owned enterprises. Uh, so that I don't think happens. The other point that is raised in the literature quite a lot, and I think that is worrying, but again, there are different reasons for it, uh, is the, the sort of increasing dependence on 
China as a source of capital, whereby capital we mean in terms of dollars, uh, as a source of capital in terms of debt capital. Uh, I think that is problematic, but that is problematic uh, because the uh, these countries are fragile. They weren't. Uh, they were fragile for a long time. It isn't as if China came in and made these countries fragile. Uh, and the fact that they've undertaken a lot of these infrastructure projects means uh, that the way these uh, deals are organized, they've had uh, serious balance of payments problems. So think about places like Sri Lanka, uh, but also other countries that are very important as far as the BRI is concerned, such as Pakistan, uh, many countries in sub-Saharan Africa as well. But even in these cases, the Chinese haven't really taken over any of the assets, because at the end of the day, what's the point in taking over these assets? What is it going to give you? It's going to create ill will as far as these country governments are concerned toward, uh, are concerned towards the Chinese. It's not going to get their money back as well. So it's it's a very it's a very tight sort of a, a juggling act as far as the Chinese are concerned because they want to maintain their sort of uh, relationship with these countries as well. They want to make sure that they get paid but they're not really sure how to go about doing it. Um, because at the end of the day, these are most definitely, these are economies that are uh, that have been precarious for a long time. And the fact that there's so much money that's been pumped in uh, in a short period of time hasn't really helped as far as the debt is concerned. But I don't think that the neo-colonial uh, sort of relationship that's branded about quite uh, freely I think that's problematic. I think that bands, that that branding is problematic as far as the PRI is concerned. There a debt trap involved with potentially making loans these countries can't pay back, and then all of a sudden China takes over infrastructure in a legal fashion that doesn't involve warfare. Well, uh, I certainly it wasn't a debt trap in the sense of being some uh, conscious. Uh, effort to get countries to overinvest. Most of the overinvestment that occurred, I'm thinking particularly of Sri Lanka, but there are other many other cases too, were cases where the, those countries or the leaders of those countries at that time were asking and asking and asking for these types of, of projects to be built and very happy with both the amounts of money and the terms of the money that they were getting. Think, don't think of it as debt traps, therefore, because a trap is something that's designed to catch and 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 preset, you know, for the, something to fall into. Think of it as debt potholes. The country with the debt falls in the pothole, but the creditor country also has a pothole that it falls into, and China's stuck with a number of these potholes now because it's been making most of its uh, investments in developing countries. And uh, those developing countries have been particularly hard hit in COVID-19 and then right now with uh, food, energy, and dollar prices. If you had just, if you had bought a house and got a nice mortgage, especially if it was a flexible term mortgage in 2018, and because you had just gotten a nice job and got married and had a kid, so you needed a nice house. Uh, and then COVID hit and you lost your job. Uh, it, it wouldn't have been a debt trap for Wells Fargo to have given you a mortgage, but it would be, in a sense, you'd feel trapped. And Wells Fargo would probably be less, you know, I don't know, as far as maybe it's gotten nicer over the years, but back in earlier times, yeah, it would uh, it would have a lot more, uh, let's say, a lot less charitable uh, response to the fact that you couldn't pay your mortgage uh, than China is having at the present time with the countries that can't pay their debts. So a lot of restructuring of these debts that's going on. And then on the flip side of that, there is um, sort of the opinion from Professor Warburg and also from a lot of people in the government right now that it really should be something we're worried about, that it is a huge danger. We talk about, well, maybe if countries are getting loans, it's just loans, it's just loans. Well, 
Professor Warburg makes the point, and I'll summarize it here, we can also listen to what he said exactly, that if China was really just trying to give loans to these countries, they could have gone through these international organizations that we have. We have the World Bank, we have the IMF, and those are very stable. And also the key thing about those international institutions is that when you accept money from them, you aren't bound by any one country's terms and conditions. You're bound by the IMF or the World Bank's terms and conditions for international. One thing that I found in my research was that among the high academic community, there's some debate as to whether or not the debt trap diplomacy is actually occurring or if that's an accurate name for it. Um, so could you tell me some of the instances in which China has actually sort of, as a result of default on a loan, secured territory or natural resources or something of the sort? Um, it's unclear to me where they have actually done that already. But with loans out in 140 countries, it's just a matter of when, not if. There have been cases where countries were unable to pay their loans back and, and China just extended the loan. They basically gave them a loan to pay the loan and then they had new loan terms. Um, that is how you get deeper in debt if you own a credit card in the United States. And it, uh, it works the same in international debt management. Um, but you can't tell me that country X in Africa that owes China 500% of their annual GDP um, isn't going to be subject to Chinese influence if Chinese, in fact, wants to, if China wants to claim ownership of a mine or even claim ownership of the product coming out of a mine, i.e. that it get exported only to China on Chinese ships from ports that China built. Um, the extensive influence networks that, 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 that China has created uh, through the One Belt Road Initiative um, um, are very substantial. Um, and embedded in all this technology, of course, is Chinese spyware. So even if they were, quote, kicked out of a country, unquote, they would have very substantially penetrated the telecommunications system of that country. A lot of the Chinese officials are claiming that calling what they're doing debt trap diplomacy isn't accurate. Is there any validity to that, in your opinion? No. Yeah. Um, a debt trap is a debt trap. If you're borrowing money and encouraging somebody to borrow money that you both know they're not going to be able to pay back, they're trapped. Unless you're going to have 100% loan forgiveness and it's just a gift. Well, then call it foreign aid. Don't call it a loan. Uh, they, you know, comparing the United States foreign aid program with the Chinese foreign aid program isn't really fair because the United States is giving grants. China's giving loans uh, in, in, in many, many circumstances. Um, and those loans will come due. If China loved the world so much that it wanted these 140 countries to prosper, uh, and, and, and yet get no leverage for China, they could just make greater contributions to the World Bank and the IMF, and then multilateral loans could be extended without Chinese influence. Uh, but in fact, China does want something. They want influence, uh, and guess what? All these jobs in these 140 countries are going to Chinese construction firms. There's a whole lot of loans that are made that the U.S. supports that come due that other countries have to pay back. But most of those are World Bank loans or IMF loans. Yeah. So they don't owe it to a specific country that might want something from them. They owe it to a multilateral institution. So really, we, if we want to think about exactly what China's intentions might be, that's something important to look at. But then also it's important to consider that um, according to one of the sources that we saw in our research, Chinese banks are willing to restructure the terms of existing loans and have never actually seized an asset from any country. That's, that's a quote from an Atlantic article. When we look at the project in Kenya, when we look at the um, Nairobi freeway, they actually restructured that loan and restructured the entire premise of it to be a mix between private and public loaning so that the government of Kenya and the government of China itself aren't really indebted by policy, but just their corporations are working together. So it's something, those are like two sides of the issue that are both important to consider when you want to form your own opinion of what China's um, ultimate intentions could be. Thank you. Um, it's very clear that there really isn't necessarily consensus about the implications of the Belt and Road Initiative right now. Um, however, 
Would you say that there is a consensus among experts about China's goals, or even if there's a consensus on what the American reaction to all of this should be? Well, to answer the first part of that question, there is, to a certain extent, a consensus on the fact that China wants to expand its economic influence, and it wants to use this massive project to increase the wealth of its country. That's fairly intuitive. The experts don't really debate that. Ultimately, the point of contention is over whether you think China is a good power that wants to help other countries, or whether you think they are a bad power who wants to take advantage of other countries to enrich themselves. And that's something we're going to have to see develop over the course of half the century. The, the plan is intended to finish or to yield fruit by 2049, the 100th anniversary of the establishment of the CCP, or not the CCP, but CCP control over China in 1949. Um, so... There's not a consensus over whether they're trying to debt trap people or just offer loans and increase the wealth of the world. However, the American reaction, definitely not a consensus on that. Some people say, um, such as Professor Warburg, that we need a new Marshall Plan. We need something to counter this, that getting rid of the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a horrible mistake because it was the beginning of doing such a project that would maintain U.S. influence. What would you say America's response to the Belt and Road Initiative should be? Just very broadly. Number one, and it's going to sound like uh, nursery school rules, um, work with your allies. Don't gratuitously harm your allies. Allies matter. Um, as General Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, under the Trump administration liked to say, Without allies, I'm going to need more soldiers and bullets. Uh, we can't get this stuff done on our own. Very few of the challenges facing us, whether it's the South China Sea militarization uh, or climate change with pandemics, they're not going to have unilateral solutions. So I would say, number one, to work harder and more consistently with our European allies, with Japan, with India, with Australia, um, and with countries around the world of goodwill, um, who are willing to work with us on common objectives. Number two would be a much more vigorous, much more creative, and much more targeted foreign aid program. Most of our foreign aid right now is in the form of security assistance to a handful of security partners, some of whom we're not collaborating with anymore, like Iraq and Afghanistan, some of whom may not need as much assistance um, as we've been providing in the past, or, or indeed deserve it, such as Egypt uh, or Jordan. Um, so I think we could reimagine our foreign aid program. I'd start with a zero-based budget. Who really needs money? What are we getting for the money? How do we advance our interests? And I would combine our soft power with our hard power options in a much more creative fashion. Um, and I believe that's something that the current administration is trying to do. We have the opportunity now in the 20s um, to be more creative and expansive in targeted foreign aid in working with multilateral institutions to develop some of these ports and infrastructure projects without Chinese control. So we have an opportunity to be a player, to compete with China for influence and access in certain countries. I don't believe in a, in a zero-sum game here. Uh, a victory for China could, in conceivable circumstances, also benefit United States national interests. Um, but as I said earlier, this is the most ambitious uh, foreign assistance plan in, in human history. And for the United States to have no effective counter um, is deeply troublesome. Uh, the Obama-Biden administration did create the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a, specifically a trade organization set up as an anti-China condominium. Um, and one of the stupidest things that Biden's predecessor did was to abandon the TPP without having a fallback option. And then there are other experts that we've talked to who suggest that we don't really need to do anything because there's nothing wrong with what China's doing. Chinese argue that rather than uh, them it being a vertical relationship as far as you know the developed world and the developing world is concerned, the BRI, the way that it's organized, the way that it sort of 
operationalize itself on the ground is very collaborative so rather than those hierarchical uh, you know relationships it's a much more uh, open sort of a dialogue between two developing countries one that has done well and which is eager to share its development experience with developing countries right uh, but very much a developing country and those power asymmetries aren't uh, there the other sort of difference uh, that the chinese sort of make or they, they argue is this notion of win win develop win win relationship right so the idea is that rather than you know sort of us giving you handouts in the form of aid etc uh, the way that we do things and we being the chinese uh, is that we will uh, sort of help you achieve your development goals but we were in the process we also want that our firms uh, our uh, producers our uh, you know sort of uh, state owned enterprises uh, etc they also gain from the process so rather than it being just uh, you know sort of the the relationship being one one being one sided you have to you know sort of make sure that the incentives of both sides are aligned and in the case of the chinese they have the resources they have the capital they have the uh, you know sort of know how in the case of developing countries um, policy makers have all of these requirements they are not able to access capital they are not able to you know sort of get western donors interested in these projects because western donors don't want to do them uh, and the chinese are fitting in they are working with local policy makers through dialogue through a mutually you know sort of uh, consultative process to you know sort of get a lot of these projects on the ground there's two grand policy options uh one would be to uh accept that china's growth that has occurred is likely to continue in some form but probably not at the same rate and to adjust american policy to a changing global environment uh that china is an increasing part of and that the whole developing world is an increasing part of not just china um the other grand alternative is uh china is changing the proportional balance of the global political economy what can we do about that how can we contain china how can we uh hamper its growth etc i think that the first possibility is in a sense less attractive because it involves us having to rethink our positions uh in in a world in which our our privileged position is being diminished so having to 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 become more competitive having to to develop our own infrastructure so that we can remain competitive in a world where not just china but a lot of other places are are more active uh so that you know that's hard to feel warm and fuzzy about uh the idea of a diminished proportion of a global economy and how to adjust to that but in my opinion that's the reality uh and that's the reality that most countries other countries would have to adjust to anyway every other no other country was in the privileged exceptional position that we have been in since the second world war so they've all adjusted to to different kinds of prospects the other possibility of circling the wagons of uh you know trying to get china under control uh is i think a losing proposition strategically because china is not just in a boxing ring with us where we can give it a good whack and then you know china goes down we're we're both parts of a much larger world scene that is changing and if we try to cut china out we will we will negatively affect our relationships with a good deal of the world and we're more likely to isolate ourselves than we are to isolate china so it's not simply just you know rolling over and playing dead because china's rising it's adjusting to a situation that accepts the fact that china is rising and still uses our advantages and defends our interests thank you 
uh, for outlining that and for bringing in the experts that we've been able to interview over the past few weeks. Look at this issue now from a more forward-looking lens. How can the United States and the West as a whole prevent this BRI from becoming a zero-sum game? In other words, is there a way we can make this mutually beneficial to China, the U.S., and everyone in between? Yeah, ultimately, I think that there is a way that we can do this. Um, when Reese was just talking, answering your previous question about whether you view China as a good country or a bad country, what if we just view China as a country? That is also another possibility. We can agree or we can agree to disagree things China might be doing internally. We can agree with China's fundamental alignment towards communism, or we can disagree with that, whatever you want to do. But in the end, when we talk about international funding, I mean, it can it can go both ways. There are a few options that you could take. Um, it's possible that we could try to assist in these projects, which is a very bold move. A lot of U.S. policymakers wouldn't want to do that. However, like in the past, when we talked about how China established their own sort of Eastern Pacific Bank, um, East Asia Pacific Bank, and we, the U.S., decided, no, we're not going to get involved in that, even though they offered us a seat at the table. Why would it have been so bad, so to speak, to have joined in that and then been able to steer it sort of in our way? And we unfortunately didn't do that. Um, some opinions that I've been reading um, say that's a mistake for U.S. foreign policy. And if that is a mistake, why can we not try to be involved with the Butler Initiative? Why can we not express support, at least even rhetorically? Maybe we don't even have to do it, you know, with our actual own American funds. We could just express, yeah, this is a good for the world. We're hopeful that China will help develop these countries, and we are hopeful that it is in good faith. We could easily make those um, points and speeches, that type of thing. And then another way that we could look at trying to make this not a zero-sum game, trying to make this mutually beneficial, would be using international institutions as an intermediary. Um, Professor Warburg talked a lot about how these international banks, the IMF, the World Bank, could be really helpful, could be, you know, um, have the same impact, if not a better impact, on these development projects. So if we don't want to work with China and we don't want to compete with China, Another thing that we could try to do is see if we could bring them to the table at IMF negotiations, and we could let them be the majority financiers for these IMF loans. We could let them be the majority leaders, probably have more seats at the table because we're using most of their money if we want to talk about World Bank funds. But it would be nice to at least tether them to an international institution so that other countries could have a say, that we could protect these sort of international rights, UN type things that we like to talk about. And that's another option. Um, you know, ever since China joined the World Trade Organization, I believe it was around 2001, but I could be wrong with that. But China, you know, joined the World Trade Organization, and that was a big deal at the time. It shows that they're coming to, that they're willing, sorry, to come to the table and work with us economically on a global scale. So is it exactly impossible to incorporate the BRI into something like that? I don't think it is. Thanks, Andrew. That's certainly a more optimistic take than we've seen from a lot of experts. So thank you for that. Yeah, and to, just to sort of add, it, it doesn't have to be exactly optimistic. Like one way we could choose to get involved with the Beltner Initiative could be, like Professor Warburg said, and like Reese mentioned, to start our own Marshall Plan. But we could consider that as supplementary to what China is doing. You know, when we talk about capitalism as an economic system, it's all about competition. So if we are competing in good faith with China, not in not in about grand ideological strategies or about military or about UN influence, if we're just competing for who can invest the best in these countries, I think it will work best for the developers in America, work best for the developers in China. And it could definitely help all these countries in the middle that really, at the end of the day, deserve development you know, when we're trying to create an international community, we want everybody to be a happy and healthy country so that they can produce, so that we can have good relations. Certainly, there, there's definitely some way forward that um, we'll just have to see whether these nations take that way forward. And to finish with this episode, 
I just wanted to ask, what about China's Belt and Road is fundamentally important for Americans and our audience um, to understand? Well, I think ultimately it's that number 2049. It's a long-term project and it's not going away. China's not going away, but the largest country by population on earth. They're growing economically. It's not something that we can just put our head in the sand about and not think about because they're becoming a major global player. They're even in Europe, even in Croatia, they built the majority EU financed Pelyshak Bridge in Croatia. It connects two discontiguous parts of their territory and China built the bridge and it's a good bridge. And in Croatia, they're popular. And now that's likely going to help Croatia enter the Schengen and make Europe closer together. So China is certainly a global power. And it's not only in the regions we discussed, such as South Asia and Africa. And ultimately, it's up to Americans to make the call and decide. Is China, we don't, we don't seem to like their government in general. It's not a democracy. It's increasingly authoritarian. But does that mean that their global actions are threatening? Is it this existential war between autocracy and democracy? Or can we find a reconciliation and work together? I think Professor Warburg has a bit more of an alarmist stance, and it's certainly a justified stance, and he'll talk about it here with debt trap diplomacy and the fact that they could control a large majority of the world's resources. Considering what you believe the motives for the Belt Road Initiative to be, how successful would you say that the BRI has been thus far? I would say it's been highly successful from Chinese terms. They've got the influence in 140 countries. Um, they had a bit of a setback in the pandemic, but I would say while it had some initial successes and it had, continues to have some successes, um, there are also some real soft spots in the whole plan. Um, and there are countries that are becoming more and more reluctant to yeah. be involved. You also talked about the restructuring of the loans during COVID. Um, things aren't working as well for China, maybe, as they might have hoped. Considering this and considering that China is going through restructuring, is going through internal issues, is it possible that this Belt and Road Initiative might not be as consequential as people fear or that maybe people that are very obsessed with this issue could be successfully labeled as like alarmist in some sense? Or do you believe there's still cause for concern when it comes to diplomatic victories for China? Um, I believe there's still cause for concern. The Chinese have a lot of virtues as a civilization. One of, them, one of those is patience and another is long-term perspective. China is a 5,000-year-old civilization. The United States is a 250-year-old civilization. Um, so 20 times uh, the history. The perspective, um, and I don't like to commend dictator Xi, but, the, but the, this plan is for 2049. This is a 30-year plan to peak around the centennial of the Declaration of the People's Republic of China in October 1949. Um, Americans... A long-term perspective on Americans is Friday. Um, we tend to think very short-term, um, the next hour, the next week. Um, and it colors our politics and it colors our diplomacy, it colors our security interests. The best thing about China's One Belt, One Road initiative from the Chinese perspective is that it's a long-term project. So you can have a 10-year setback because of the pandemic or a 10-year setback because of you know, climate change impacting low-lying areas like center of Pakistan. Um, but China is thinking long term. Um, and it is perhaps one of the greatest challenges for some of your listeners is how can American diplomats and security professionals in the next generation, how can you guys develop an ability to think more long term when there's these existential right now crises occurring right and left? But then there are other people such as Professor Womack and Professor Sopdar who discuss that they're just trying to do business and they really don't want these global assets or some sort of taking over the world situation. Where do you see this project going if you have any predictions in that time frame? I mean, there's already so so we, we started off when I, I made this point to you earlier and I'm sure other people must have made this point as well. It's very amor the way that it's. So what is the Belt and Road Initiative? And what isn't the Belt and Road Initiative as far as China and its relationship with the world is concerned is, is a very interesting sort of a question uh, to ask. Uh, I And 
what we've seen over the last few years is that there's been a reorientation that's taken place as far as the BRI or what cons- constitutes as BRI projects uh, is is taking place. So, for example, there's there's uh, there's a focus on moving beyond infrastructure projects to add other streams within uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. So, there's a there is an al- already a move to sort of reimagining. Uh, what the BRI is beyond infrastructure. There are various manifestations of it, such as uh, the Global Development Initiative, which once again is closely aligned to the BRI. Um, So I think there is going to be this evolution. How are countries joining the the Belt and Road Initiative? Are they being forced to? Is China occupying these countries? China's security presence overseas is going from zero to about 5%, and to a great extent, that 5% is involved in cooperative measures of of, uh, UN peacekeeping enforcement. China's not attempting to challenge our role as a global security provider. Uh, And the Belt and Road Initiative and other initiatives like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank those do not have a coercive aspect toward the other countries that are participating. China is also affecting the balance of global productivity, uh, global prospects. Uh, And I don't see this as an attempt to replace the United States or to replace the developed world, but it definitely leads to a certain uh, change in the proportions of the global political economy that have existed basically for the previous 500 years. For, for the previous 500 years, developing world has been, you know, parts of it were colonized, but in any case, the developed world took off and the gap between developed countries and developing countries increased enormously. And that increase went on until uh, the very late 1990s, that gap was increasing. But in this century, that gap has been decreasing and decreasing relatively rapidly. And in 2008, for the first time since the 19th century, the GDP of the developing world exceeded that of the developed world. So China's, China's a big part of the story. But the story is bigger than China. So ultimately, we're going to have to decide whether we can work with them, even though their system is different, or whether that is an unreconcilable difference and we have to create a bulwark against it. But either way, it's a long-term thing, and it's something that will have to be dealt with and can be dealt with. Thank you, Reese. That's our episode for the week. As always, thank you for listening to The Global Inquirer. And thank you to Andrew and Reese for bringing us this week's story. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook.